to nine. While you're finding the place, I little somebody's told me that it's it's Father's Day, but it's also somebody's birthday today, and that's Pastor David's birthday today. <laughs> Matthew chapter fifteen, verse one. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who causes their father or mother to be put to death. But you say, If anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God. They are not to honour the father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day, dads and granddads and uncles and anyone who's played that dadly role in someone's life. Um, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to talk about this commandment that's the fifth, well, it's, I guess it's the sixth in our series because we're running backwards, but fifth commandment if you're going from the front like sensible people, um, to honor our fathers and mothers. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for our fathers. Um, and we pray now that you open our hearts to what you have to say and open up your word to our hearts. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a nice picture. This is a picture from 1943 in Detroit, Michigan. These young men are saying goodbye to their children and their wives before that train will roll off to leave them at New York Harbor where a ship will be waiting to take them to Europe or the Pacific Theater to fight in the most earth-shattering conflict the world has ever known. We know they've been drafted, because this is 1943, and all the volunteers are already gone and over there. We know they're pretty late in the draft, because the U.S. tend to preference away from sending uh, recently married men or, or young fathers um, away to the war if they could. Nevertheless, their numbers came up, and here they are preparing to go to the other side of the world to exchange gunfire and maybe die, because that is the kind of sacrifice they had been required to make. Their wives are not without sacrifice themselves. After saying goodbye to the men they have planned to spend their lives with and raise their families with, they'll go off and they will staff ammunition factories and reclamation plants and aircraft assembly lines and everything else a nation at war needs to give its far-flung fathers the best resources to have victory. And these women would do this all the time knowing that their men may come back wounded or maimed or not at all. These are some of the many reasons that they would make these sacrifices, knowing that it's been demanded of them by their nation, that there is a sense of uh, freedom they are protecting in the world. But not the least of those reasons is the fact of the children suspended between them in this picture. These mothers and fathers will risk and sacrifice enormously in the hope that they might make the world gentle enough for their children and their children tough enough for the world. But this attitude, this intense loyalty inside the family between the men and the women, children and parents, families, and country is not actually typical human behavior on the grand scale of things. It's a gift from God that was introduced to the world with his law to the people, and which over thousands of years has been shaping and informing the culture we live in out of a brutal past 
and into a modern world which has not lost its capacity to be brutal, but which faces brutal circumstances and challenges in a pattern that seems to us so obviously good and right that it's almost inconceivable that we ever did without it. The idea that the strong protect the weak and they are repaid in honor for that. And that's what parenthood is very much about. So we're going through our series on the Ten Commandments, you know, and appropriately enough, it's Father's Day. We're up to Commandment 5. We're honoring our fathers and mothers. So we're going to look at that commandment and, and what it meant when Moses heard it, when he received it from God, what it meant when Jesus repeated it and revisited it in the passage we just read, and what it means for us now. And as always, when we're looking through the Old Testament, the context of that history is important to us, just like when we talked about the adultery commandment, a few weeks ago, we must remember that there is a, a principle in the commandment that is timeless and unchanging, but it can apply differently in different generations. This commandment is case in point because this is the, uh, well, commandment that contains a promise, the only one, in fact. It says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you, that the Lord your God is giving you. So why should these recently emancipated slaves who know nothing about being free, let alone being a civilization, how do they honor their mothers and fathers? Because it's going to help them uh, to live long in this, uh, live long and well in the land God's going to give them. So how should they do this? What were they doing beforehand? A society where children honor their parents is one that can last it can pass its traditions and its laws onto the next generation. It can be reasonably coherent across time. Because one of the great purposes of the Ten Commandments is to give this newly emerging nation of the Hebrews some foundation which holds them together as a people under God. So they needed to hear this. They heard that everyone is going to worship the one God now we are not households with household gods. We are one nation under one God. There is no stealing from each other, even if it benefits your tribe or your family, because everyone is united now. No violating the marriage covenants of others, because if you could get away with that, even if you could get away with that, their marriage should be as sacred and inviolable to you as yours should be to you, because they are part of your nation. You are one people under God. And you can see how all these ideas are not purely about being individually holy and obedient before God. That is absolutely the foremost application of those commandments, but also it's about how a people collectively honors God, how they do it as a culture together. And so what do these commandments, well, what does this commandment require of us that isn't immediately obvious? Well, this commandment, in the same way there's other commandments unify tribes, into one nation. This commandment is about unifying generations across time. And that's interesting to me because until I took the time to study this commandment, I thought about it mostly in the way that I think most Christians do. It's an instruction for children to obey their parents because the parents are the ones who are going to teach them about God. It's the kids' church commandment. When you're going through Exodus with little kids, then this is the commandment you hit them with. Because you can ask them, have you ever murdered anyone? You ever built a graven image? Ever coveted anyone's wife? And they will say, no, no, and no, I'm a pretty good kid. This is going very well. Um, uh, but have you always honored your mother and father? Because I have their phone numbers and I can ask them. 
But there's a couple of things to remember when we're reading Old Testament law. The first is that God doesn't typically create obvious laws. He usually creates laws that are difficult to follow and they're not the thing that people would normally do right off the bat. Otherwise, they wouldn't need them. And if God had to prescribe to everyone what they should do that they already knew to do, then the book would never end. And it's kind of obvious that little children should obey and honor their parents, because what else are they going to do? What choices do they have? They're, they're tiny and vulnerable. They very quickly figure out that their only source of food and protection is from their parents. Uh, they have to do what they're told, at least most of the time. Otherwise, they don't get what they need. They push back against the boundaries you give them, but that's how they learn what those boundaries are. God didn't need to reach down from heaven and scribe this one into stone. And even if he did for that purpose, children are not going to start behaving just because God told them to. They don't understand who God is and why they should obey him until they listen to their parents enough to learn who he is from them. That's the first thing to remember, that there's usually not much in the way of obvious commandments. And the second thing is that these commandments come first to the adult men of Israel, to the heads of their households. doesn't mean it only applies to them, of course, but that's where the law kind of starts. That's why you're told not to covet your neighbor's wife, but nothing is mentioned about a neighbor's husband. This is not because wives are freely invited to covet away, but because we're expected to interpret the obvious broader meanings from the first commandment to the heads of the households. And this would suggest that this law is actually primarily about adults honoring their aging parents. Honor your father and mother because a people that honors their aging fathers and mothers will honor you when you age out of your prime. And that's very important indeed because our picture of aging characters from scripture tends to be people like Moses and Noah who are supernaturally vigorous in the way they do God's work. But what might have been in store for the average Israelite's father and mother at this time? And for which reason God saw fit to command his people on pain of death to honor them? Well, consider these guys. These men belong to a group of people called the Ache people. Ache means axe. They are the axe people. They are um, uh, native uh, people group from South America and what is now Paraguay. Uh, anthropologists love this tribe because they are historically very close to their ancient roots. Um, when the Spanish came in the 15th century, they kind of made these guys retreat to the hills and forest and didn't really chase them much further than that. And they were mostly left alone until the 1970s when they were pacified and driven off that land. And finally, it was returned to them about 15 years ago. But they had had a Stone Age hunter-gatherer culture that had existed as far back as anyone could tell in their little history there. Um, they exist using flint axes, or they existed using flint axes and nomadic living all the way up to the 70s, the 1970s. And so there are Achaeans living today who can be interviewed about what life was like before the modern world absorbed them, living on a hunter-gatherer kind of a subsistence lifestyle. There's lots of stone axes and grave sites and things that historians like to dig up and study and document. And one of the disturbing things about the Ache people is that they had a particular job for a handful of each tribal group's young men, and this job was to murder their elderly. If those elders lacked, of course, the charity to die in a timely fashion. As the group was traveling, these young men would take their axes, they would creep up behind them, particularly their older women, since an older woman is long past childbearing age, runs out of physical strength before a man does, 
runs out of usefulness to the tribe before a man does. They would cut them down or bury them alive or otherwise subject their grandmothers and grandfathers to hideous execution before they could become a burden on the tribe. This is horrible, but certainly not unimaginable. And it doesn't uh, exist without historical precedent and uh, corollaries. The Inuit tribes in North America found it harder and harder to warm and feed their aging relatives so they would leave them out on the ice to freeze. Vikings of Europe and Muslims of the Middle East both have cultures which historically have encouraged aging men to die in battle rather than become old and burdensome. And cultures from around the world have practices like this in their origins. Not universally, but certainly common enough, and common enough to disturb us. Either the tribe deals with its burdensome elderly element or it obligates that burdensome elderly element to deal with itself. The modern era is not safe from this cultural scourge either. Japan right now is struggling to handle an epidemic of elderly suicides. Some who see themselves um, using their death, trying to remain useful, who find themselves deep in debt and hope that if they can uh, successfully defraud their insurance policies, they will contribute something to their children as they go. And lest we let ourselves off the hook, you need only talk to those involved in care outreaches work to hear a similar tale. Men in the outback and rural areas are uh, twice as likely to commit suicide as men in city areas, and two-thirds of farmer suicides are older men. Official studies blame this on, blame the statistic on economic change, stress caused by drought, flood, and bushfire, and stoic masculine attitudes which discourage individuals from seeking help. This is all blurry jargon. Anyone who pays attention and has a little sense can see that these older men end their lives because when they lose their farms or the productivity of those farms, they cannot bear the feeling that they have failed to provide for the people they love. And that they indeed need providing for now and they come to believe that their loved ones will be better off without them. Now we never spell it out in our culture explicitly and we don't take up access to do it ourselves, but like it or not, there is something about our culture which sends the message that if you can't contribute in a meaningful way, you are a bludger and we are all better off without the bludgers. So how did the ancient Israelites treat their elders? The only pictures we get are those of the individual, very prestigious individuals like Abraham and the other patriarchs. Those seem to be quite positive in how they get honored. But what about after these people have been slaves for generations in Egypt? What do you think might have happened to the older Israelite men and women when their hands became too shaky or weak to make the bricks. Those folks still need food and warmth at night, food that could otherwise go to their children or um, those who are being more productive towards their quota. What might a people whose life and identity has come to desperate survival and the sustaining belief that one day their children, not their parents, must live in a promised land where they will be blessed by God? We're not told explicitly what happens there, but it's not a stretch to imagine that a lot of those elders thought that they might be less of a burden if they wandered off into the dunes alone. And it wouldn't be a stretch to say that it's likely that some of those callous sons and daughters might have helped some of their parents impatiently toward that conclusion. And it's to this world that God says, honor your father and mother. He is teaching his people that there are things that are 
mattering more than immediate productivity. That from now on, God's people will honor their father and their mother, even after their children have grown up and married off to families of their own, and they have their own children to worry about, even if their father and mother are not as useful as they were before, even if they have become something of a burden. Because God's people do not derive the value of human life from production. God's people derive the value of human life from the truth that every life bears the mark of the Creator. That every life has God's image on it, and therefore God alone is the right to call those people home. And the commandment is not here just merely honor your elderly or honor your elders, because the primary responsibility for this falls on the sons and daughters. As your parents sought your good when you were young, so you will seek their good after they are old. There's a principle of uh, general care which extends beyond this. God's people should see after the care of all their elders and see them all taken care of. But the primary command is such that we are to repay the sacrifices of our parents by making sacrifices for them. That's when God is most pleased. And this is the offense for which Jesus rebukes the Pharisees when he calls them to account in the, commandment, uh, in the commandment's invocation in Matthew 15. Jesus is talking about fathers and mothers of adults when he rebukes the Pharisees in the passage we read earlier, which goes like this. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that it might have been used to help their anything, that, that if anyone declares that what might have been sorry, um, used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You see, God had taken those people who had come from a time where the world was so desperate and savage that the tribes might have regularly been forced to choose between the survival of their parents and the survival of their children. And he had taken them through generations, promising them, I am the God who makes the rain fall into your cups and the manna fall from heaven in my presence. The world yields all of its abundance and the deprivation of the hard earth that Adam was cursed to work falls away. Draw near to me and you will have plenty. Stray far from me and you will have nothing. Obey me and you will never have to make those choices again. Your children will eat from your hand and in later days you will eat from theirs. That's why he's called Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And by Jesus' time, even given all of the rebellion that had happened, all of the varied circumstances, the terrible kings, the exile, the return over time, they are no longer in such a position that they need to make those choices. God has provided. They're not hunting and gathering. They never had to consider that so much anymore. They have farms instead of foraging. They have uh, relative abundance in their lives. And they have intricate family networks that mostly keep their elders from starving on the streets. But God did not say, don't let your parents starve. That's only the most obvious application of what he did say, which is honor your father and mother. There's an implication that they are owed dignity that is beyond the most basic care. 
And the Pharisees were advising the Jewish people, most of which were much poorer than them, and therefore who might not have had the money to split between voluntary extra donations to the temple and the care of their parents, advising them to preference the donations to the temple. As far as we can see, the Pharisees received themselves no personal financial benefit from this instruction. We're not told they're getting a commission for each donation. But Jesus is rebuking them for being so callous as to elevate the institutions and traditions above obedience to the principles and the character that God wants all of us to live out. 500 years earlier, the Jews were in exile in Babylon and the temple was a heap of smoking rubble a thousand kilometers away. There was no temple, no priestly structure, no promised land under their feet, and they learned there truly that it is better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to do what God says we should do than to perform all of the rituals and the cleansings that Moses has taught. They learned that lesson in exile in Babylon, and that's when they developed the synagogue system where they would learn to d- and discuss about God's teachings and how they should live together. And Jewish life stopped being quite so much about cleansing rituals and burnt offerings and became about how you lived in the sight of God and your neighbor. But in the years since they had returned to Israel and rebuilt the temple and rediscovered the law and reinstituted the priesthood and the sacrifices, they had become a nation obsessed with ritual devotion. The temple and the sacrifices were meant to bring people closer to God, but you can't serve God without serving your fellow man. That's why Jesus is the servant king. He showed us that loving God and loving one another are inseparable commandments. But the Pharisees had said, God is more important than any man or woman. Therefore, using your money as an offering to his temple is more important than using it to secure the dignity of your father and mother. But acting in love and in honor towards those in need, especially those who depend on us and who have showed us honor by raising us, is a better offering to God than all the gold in the world. Now, does this kind of thing still happen today? Are we so callous with our resources towards our parents and our elders as the Pharisees were? Perhaps not so severely, and praise God for that. You'd hope we'd made some kind of progress over 2,000 years. This is a question, particularly for adults with aging parents, or even young adults with not quite so aging parents there. But nonetheless, how many of us have gotten a call saying something like, sweetheart, your father and I are flying to Tasmania for a little holiday. Do you think you can drive us to the airport at 6 a.m.? An inconvenient duty we might not like to perform. How easy it is to say, gee, I've actually got a church thing, or a game, or a meeting that morning. I don't want to be late. It's kind of pushing up against each other. Well, we know in our heart our response probably should be, gee, mum, since you were in labor for 36 hours, I can probably spare you one. It's hard to speak to this idea generally of how well we are supposed to honor our mother and fathers today because the field of possibility that what that could mean is so broad today. It's not a one-size-fits-all category of how fathers and mothers relate to their kids. We're no longer in an age where the whole family lives their whole life in a single 30-kilometer radius. Some kids grow up and move in next door to their parents. Some move to the other side of the world for work. Some never move out at all. 
Some mothers and daughters are best friends. Some fathers and sons find their relationship dramatically improves with distance. Some people have wonderful parents. Some people's parents die long before their time. Some people have extended family or family friends who um, have filled the role of their mother and father. Some people have parents for whom it is extremely difficult for them to find anything worth honoring. But it is up to us individually to seek out what it means to honor our fathers and mothers today. Because honoring our father and mother is hard to nail down because the relationship dynamics between parents and children is more wildly diverse today than it has ever been. But the idea of honor that was carved into the stone as part of that commandment does not change. And if we understand that well, then we can apply that to our circumstances. The word for honor in the commandment comes from the idea of something that possesses weight. The idea is that something that has weight is something that matters. It's not insubstantial. It doesn't blow away. Something that um, we have in the English language a little bit. Something that matters might be a heavy topic. Um, something that doesn't matter might be more lighthearted. We have to appreciate the gravity of a situation to honor is to treat something as if it possesses importance and value. And that means whatever age we are at, we look to our fathers and our mothers, and more generally with this principle, to those senior to us, those who have provided a parental function in our lives, in our communities, those that served us when we were children and serve us now, and we in turn must figure out how best to serve them. If they are aging or coming to a point in their life where they sometimes require help, this may require us to forego opportunities elsewhere in order to be able to provide that help. If our parents are still youngish, maybe the best thing we can do is get a job while we study and start paying some board to take a little bit of the burden of our living expenses off them. Maybe the best thing we can do is to move out and demonstrate to them they have indeed raised a child who can stand unassisted, which is the secret hope of all parents' hearts. And if they are senior enough to be in a retirement village or a care home, maybe honoring them means that we need to consciously resist the trap of allowing our life to become so busy that we no longer have time for them. And furthermore, to resist the trap that is allowing them to feel as though they are not worth our time or that spending time with them is not worth the inconvenience. If we have such a relationship with our mother or our father that is so fraught with pain and conflict that we don't want to spend any time with them and they haven't done anything to earn our honor, honoring them might mean remembering that this command is from God and not a transaction between child and parent. And maybe in that circumstance we honor them by finding the minimal safe contact that we can do peacefully, a call on their birthday, a conscious decision not to fall into the well-worn grooves of conflict. For all of us, it will one day mean honoring them by doing everything in our power to be near them as their time on earth draws to an end. For too many of us, I am sad to say, it will mean honoring our fathers and mothers will involve subjecting ourselves to the sympathetic agony of spending time with them while they slowly lose parts of their body and their minds to illness, which may indeed be worse than death. They may be even incapable at that time of feeling the warmth and the gratitude we have come to expect from them. But we honor them because God commands us to and because of everything they have done for us and not because of the ease or the difficulty of honoring them. They must matter enough to us that we are willing to suffer some beside them. Though it may hurt, they are worth it. 
And when they have passed, honoring them may involve scattering their ashes in the place they have chosen, visiting and caring for the place we have laid them to rest, bearing their pictures in our albums and their stories in our recollection of the life they lived. Perhaps naming a child after them, perhaps bearing their medals on Remembrance Days. We don't do these things out of some sense of superstition as another culture might. We do them because these ways of living show our honor for them, for those who came before us, who were like Christ to us and how they served us with their lives, who were, however imperfectly, the ones that God chose to give us life and a host of other blessings. We are well past the age where it's uh, acceptable for us as a culture to merely ensure our elders are fed well after they're capable of doing it for themselves. And with God's blessing, we live in an incredibly free and prosperous nation where most people retire with enough wealth to live well without being directly supported by their children. But this only means that we have the opportunity to fulfill this commandment in ways that those who came before us never could have considered. We can look at our lives and our church and see our fathers and our mothers, those who have honored us, treating us as if we mattered, shepherding us towards a life that better pleases God. And we can ask ourselves, how can I best serve the ones who came before me in my family and in my faith? We owe that honor to them. And we owe that living of that kind of life to our God. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a loving Father, that you provide for us, that you bless us, that you give us a world of abundance and prosperity like no other generation has ever known, and that you so love us that you would send your Son to serve us, to die for us so that we could be freed from sin and call your children. And we thank you, Lord, for our fathers and for our mothers those who are ours by blood, for those who have proven themselves just the same through love and care. For those who in half-hour church program sessions or family visits at a time have been to us in little ways what a mother or father should be. And we pray now that you help each of us in our varied situations to know what it means to honor them. Show us the right way to sacrifice some of our time or our wealth for those who have sacrificed so much time and wealth for our benefit. Help us to show them how we value what they are to us and how so much of the best of who we are is because of who they are. Help us to honor those who have given us the highest blessing of teaching us how to follow you, Lord, and those who have given us the humblest of blessings going without a little so that we could have a little for ourselves. Convict us and inspire us in our lives to recognize the wisdom of our elders, Lord. And convict us and inspire us, Lord, with the honor that we might give to them in return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.